Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. On May 9th, 1952, a small crowd began gathering just before sunrise outside San Quentin State Prison in Marin County, north of San Francisco. It was execution day at California's oldest prison, and a handful of protesters who opposed the death penalty, wanted their voices heard. They always showed up when the prison's death chamber was going to be put to use. But their presence on that day wasn't likely going to prevent what was about to take place inside. At 10 minutes to 10 a.m., the prisoner was removed from his solitary cell. Two burly guards escorted him down the long, poorly lit passageway as he walked towards his fate. He had a date with the Green Monster. That's what San Quentin inmates called the prison's gas chamber. The prisoner had spent only 16 months on death row and had refused any appeals or stays of execution, despite his lawyer's advice. He claimed that he wanted to die in peace and said he didn't want to suffer the agony of fighting the execution, knowing he would likely lose in the end. As the baby-faced inmate passed by the other prison cells on death row, an eerie silence permeated the barren corridor. None of the other condemned men said goodbye or gave the prisoner a traditional farewell of see you in hell or may the devil take you. They all hated him. When he reached his final destination, Warden Harley Teets was there to greet him. The prison official offered the condemned man his hand, but he was rebuffed. Don't you care to shake hands, the warden asked. What for, said the sullen convict. The inmate had turned down his last meal, his last rites, and had even refused to shake hands with the guards who had kept him supplied with cigarettes and coffee on his final night. His bitterness towards the world had increased in his last hours of life, and now he was ready to die. At 10.01 a.m., 
he was strapped into the well-worn brown leather chair in the prison's gas chamber. Twelve witnesses stood watch, including a veteran crime reporter who had been the only journalist the convicted murderer had ever agreed to speak to a few months earlier. The interview had been so sensational that the reporter's newspaper had sent him back to California to witness the execution. Now, the gathered witnesses wondered if the prisoner in the chair had anything else to say. Would there be any last words? A final message to his loved ones? Remorse for his crimes? But the man said nothing. As a lethal cyanide gas seeped into the room, the inmate looked up at the ceiling and closed his eyes. It was almost peaceful, but then he began convulsing and frothing at the mouth. Many of the witnesses, including the crime reporter, turned away. They couldn't watch what was happening. But it didn't take long for his heart to stop beating. At 10.13 a.m., he was pronounced dead. The following day, the Los Angeles Times reported that the L.A. cat burglar was dead. The 27-year-old had been given the unusual moniker by the Los Angeles press after several daring robberies and a murder that left the city on edge. And even after his capture, the nimble thief had escaped from police custody by scaling down bedsheets tied together outside a 13th floor prison hospital room. But his luck finally ran out after a brazen shootout with the police. He was captured and tried for the murder of a 78-year-old woman during an attempted robbery at her Los Angeles home. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to die under California law. But it turned out that the man known as the Los Angeles cat burglar had died a long way from home. His name was Stanley Bukowski. He was born in rural Saskatchewan and grew up in Toronto. And to this day, he is the only Canadian ever executed in the state of California. But his crimes were not just confined to the Golden State. Stanley Bukowski had left a trail of misdeeds across the U.S. and had been the number one suspect in three unsolved murders in Toronto in the summer of 1949. The Canadian police had been hunting for him ever since. But... By the time they caught up with him, he had murdered again, and now he would die for his crimes in California. The Toronto police would not be bringing their suspect home to face Canadian justice. But was he their murderer? Could they get the Los Angeles cat burglar, a.k.a. Stanley Bukowski, to admit to his prior crimes? to confess to three brutal killings in Toronto before his date with San Quentin's notorious green monster? California would get its pound of flesh. But would this Canadian criminal 
first reveal everything he had done. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you a true crime story that takes us from a grocery store holdup in Toronto's East End to California's gas chamber. This is Murderer on the Run, The Execution of Stanley Bukowski. Episode 1, Deadly Weekend. Saturday, July 30th, 1949, was a typical hot summer day in Toronto, Ontario. For the Lang family and many others, Saturday was always a shopping day in the city's bustling East End. But it was the August 1st holiday long weekend, so the shops were going to be extra busy with people buying provisions for picnics and barbecues. 24-year-old Alfred Lang, his wife Shirley, and their four-year-old daughter Patricia had waited until later in the afternoon to head out into their Cabbage Town neighborhood to pick up some supplies from the local Loblaws Grossateria on Parliament Street. Alfred, a World War II vet who had served in the Royal Canadian Air Force, had promised his daughter they would buy some firecrackers to light in their backyard later that evening to celebrate the summer holiday. Mrs. Lang was thinking about buying a roast for Sunday dinner. As the Langs reached the intersection of Parliament and Carlton Street, a man suddenly ran out of the Loblaws store carrying a duffel bag. Behind him, another man was yelling, Stop that man! Just moments earlier, Adam Stoddart The store manager had been surprised in his office when a stranger walked in, pulled a pistol from his pocket, and ordered Stoddard to open the safe. The man who smelled of whiskey told Stoddard to lie down on the floor or he would get it. Now the man with the gun and a duffel bag stuffed with a thousand dollars in cash was running right towards the Langs. Alfred instinctively pushed his four-year-old daughter Patricia into a doorway. Then, he opened his arms wide to catch the fugitive. The two men struggled, and the robber fell to the ground. Mrs. Lang yelled out, but no one rushed to help her husband subdue the man. The robber finally managed to get to his feet. His face was bloodied from hitting the pavement, but Alfred Lang grabbed him again. Then, bang, bang, bang. Alfred fell to the ground, and the man took off down Carlton Street, holding a gun in his hand. After the shots rang out, Alfred stumbled to get up and reached his arms out to his wife. Stunned and terrified, Shirley Lang stood motionless. Are you all right? she gasped. Don't worry, I'm all right, hun, Alfred said, almost apologetically, before collapsing on the sidewalk at his wife's feet. He was dead. Within minutes of Alfred Lang collapsing and dying on the street in front of his wife and four-year-old daughter, the police arrived and surrounded the area. 
the gunman was spotted running west along Ontario Street, and dozens of people gave chase. But the fleeing man eluded them, running through a maze of backyards and alleyways. Among the first officers on the scene was Detective Sergeant Adolphus J. Payne, veteran of the Toronto Police Force. Payne began searching the area and encountered a man on Seaton Street who said a stranger had just walked into his house. John Vancott, the startled homeowner, told the detective that the man was sweating and out of breath. He looked terrified, like a caged animal, and took off as soon as Vancott questioned him and told him to get out of his house. He ran out the back door, down the alleyway. Payne retraced the man's escape behind Vancott's house. He looked under porches, searched garbage cans, and even got down on his hands and knees to look for clues. Eventually, he discovered what turned out to be important evidence discarded under some back stairs. It was a man's grey jacket, a grey fedora hat, and a blue tie. Further down the same alleyway, Payne also found a pair of gold-rimmed reading glasses. Later that day, when the clothing was examined at the police station, they found a pair of bloodstained gloves in the pocket of the jacket, along with several 38 caliber bullets. It was later determined to be the same caliber bullet that had killed Alfred Lang. It was clear to Payne and the other detectives that the jacket found in the alleyway was expensive and had been custom-made. Perhaps if they could find the tailor who made the coat, they just might find their murderer. The police arranged for a clothing store near the Loblaws on Parliament Street to display the jacket and the other items on a mannequin in hopes that someone might recognize them. The police also posted a $2,000 reward for any information leading to the killer's arrest, and the Loblaws company offered an additional thousand. Soon, tips started pouring in. And after interviewing dozens of witnesses, a police sketch artist was able to come up with a strong composite drawing of the man who had gunned down Alfred Lang in front of his family. The sketch was posted on the front of the Globe and Mail newspaper on Monday morning, the last day of the August long weekend. Later that same day, the police got a call about a missing car. The car, which had been stolen in Toronto on the night of Alfred Lang's murder, had been found two and a half hours north in Wasaga Beach, a small town on Georgian Bay. When the police inspected the car, they found a bloody handprint on the dashboard. They now suspected Lang's killer was hiding in the area and might try to steal another car. By Monday evening, word of the senseless murder of a young husband and father in Toronto had tainted the long weekend celebrations in southern Ontario. The happy image of Alfred and Shirley on their wedding day on the front page of the paper had the community upset and on edge. A cold-blooded killer was on the loose, and he might strike again. Ordinary citizens wanted to help, and hundreds of leads and possible sightings were reported 
based on the police sketch in the Globe and Mail newspaper. But for one person, seeing his likeness plastered on the front page of the national newspaper was extremely distressing. The killer knew it was only a matter of time before someone recognized him in the Wasaga Beach area. He needed to move fast and get far away, no matter what it took. On Monday, August 1st, Robert Smith McKay, his wife Gloria, and their cocker spaniel puppy, Toby, were heading back to Toronto after the long weekend at his uncle's farm near Barrie, Ontario. Robert's uncle had been injured in a farming accident and was no longer able to care for the farm on his own. Robert and Gloria would visit often to help out. On that particular weekend, Gloria and Robert had brought in 10 loads of hay, and Gloria had also made a new dress for herself out of a pink cotton material she had picked up in Barrie. Gloria was wearing her new summer dress when she and Robert left the farm on Monday evening to drive back to the city. Although Gloria had suggested they play hooky from their jobs Tuesday morning and stay an extra day, they both decided that they should get back to the city. 25-year-old Robert was a Royal Canadian Air Force veteran. He had served overseas in India before being discharged in 1946. He was now working as an electrician at the Canadian Electric Company. 23-year-old Gloria was working at a financial office on Bay Street. The couple lived in a small apartment on Emerson Avenue, but were saving up to buy a house and hopefully start a family. Their fifth wedding anniversary was just a few days away. Before they drove off, they told Robert's uncle they would be back to help on the farm again in two weeks. That was the last time anyone ever saw the McKays alive. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Tuesday morning, bricklayer Charles Edwards was working at his job at a residential construction site on Saguenay Avenue in the Lawrence and Bathurst area of the city. In the post-war period, Toronto was booming, and new housing developments were going up all over. And the new Young Street subway line being constructed would finally connect the north end of the city to the downtown core. Eight new homes were being built on Saguenay Avenue, a ravine plot of land that was well known as a lover's lane. Taking a break from his work, Edwards walked down a pathway into the wooded ravine. He hadn't gone far when he saw what he initially thought was a man sleeping in the underbrush. Pardon me, he said to the person. But as he got closer, Edwards noticed blood on the ground. The man was lying face up, and his glassy eyes were wide open. Edward stumbled out of the ravine and ran to find his boss, Paul Johannes. Johannes lived close by and had found a woman's purse near the ravine earlier that morning. He called the North York Police Station right away. When the police arrived, they discovered the body of a young man lying in the ravine. He was neatly dressed but it was obvious that he had been shot. Based on the crime scene, it appeared that the victim had been murdered elsewhere and then brought to the location where his body had been dragged from the road and dumped into the ravine. Housing developer Paul Johannes gave the police the woman's purse he had found that same morning. When the police opened it, they discovered it belonged to a Gloria McKay of Emerson Avenue. Photographs in the purse showed a young, smiling couple. The police soon realized that the dead man in the woods was her husband, Robert McKay. But where was Gloria? The police immediately gathered a search party, and over 50 officers combed the swampy ravine looking for any other clues. An all-points bulletin was put out on the couple's missing car, a 1942 black Dodge sedan with white wall tires and red seat covers. The police knew time was critical if they had any hopes of finding Gloria McKay alive. Few hours later, Chief Coroner Dr. Smurl Lawson was brought in to examine the body of Robert McKay. Dr. Lawson estimated that the young man had been killed approximately 12 hours before his body was found. 
McKay had been shot twice, once in the head and once through the heart. Either shot would have been fatal. Powder marks on the clothing also indicated that the shots had been fired at close range. Later that evening, during an autopsy, a copper-clad slug fired from a 38 caliber weapon was removed from the body. The following day, Wednesday, August 3rd, security guard Charles Gibbs was doing his regular rounds at the Christie Street Veterans Hospital where he worked. Walking across the parking lot, he noticed a small, golden-colored dog tied to the front bumper of a car. The car was a black sedan with white wall tires. When Gibbs approached the car, he noticed that the dog appeared frightened and was trembling. Gibbs looked into the front of the car and saw some clothing and dark stains on the bucket seat. Then he looked in the back seat and ran to call the police right away. When the police arrived, they made a gruesome discovery. Lying face down on the floor of the back seat of the car was Gloria McKay. She had been shot and killed. From the amount of blood on the passenger side of the car, it looked like someone had opened the car door and fired point blank at her. Then, the killer had moved her body into the back of the car, wrapped her in a blanket, and had thrown a suitcase on top of her so she would not be seen. Her gloves were still lying in a pool of blood on the front seat. Detective Sergeant Payne said Mrs. McKay's shoes and stockings were found in the car, but she had not been sexually assaulted or robbed. In fact, her purse that had been found close to her husband's body contained a significant amount of money and jewelry. An autopsy later confirmed that Gloria had also been killed by a copper-clad 38 caliber bullet. But who killed the McKays, and why? They were a quiet young couple, said their neighbors. Sweet kids, always friendly, and they loved their little dog. Red, as Robert McKay was known by his friends because of his carrot-colored hair, didn't have an enemy in the world, said his former boss. Three murders in three days. It didn't make sense. But the police were already beginning to speculate that the crimes might be connected. All three victims had been killed by 38 caliber bullets. And the bullets were a unique military issue, not available to the public. Working on the theory that one person was responsible for all three murders, the police sent the bullets taken from Robert and Gloria McKay's bodies to RCMP ballistics experts in Ottawa. They wanted the bullet compared to the slug taken from Alfred Lang's body a few days earlier. A provincial-wide manhunt was on for the killer of Alfred Lang and Robert and Gloria McKay. Whoever was responsible had to be caught before he murdered again. Tips and possible sightings of the suspects soon flooded the switchboards of multiple police forces across the province. One man who fit the description was picked up in Kingston, Ontario, while another was arrested in Brampton. Three other men were detained 
when someone spotted them trying to hitch a ride on a freight train pulling out of Toronto. And police raided a house on Church Street looking for another possible suspect. Toronto Mayor Hiram McCallum announced a special police initiative to confiscate any unregistered guns and urge people to turn in any weapons or face arrest. Mayor McCallum also said that the police commission would take any measures necessary to stop what he called the reign of terror that had brought death to three innocent people on one long weekend in the city. He personally urged the public to come forward with any information about the Lang and McKay murders. In the days that followed the deadly August long weekend, the police received over 300 letters, mostly claiming they knew who the murder suspect was. Every lead was followed up, although none panned out. But finally, one anonymous letter piqued the interest of Detective Sergeant Payne. Check out Stanley Bukowski, it read. Hasn't been around since Lang was murdered. Payne was very familiar with that name. 23-year-old Stanley Bukowski was a well-known local petty thief who hung out with a gang in the Bluer and Bathurst area of the city. He had started his criminal career by age 15 and had already served two and a half years in prison for break and enter. He had also done a stint in the army, but was discharged due to a drug addiction. Detective Payne also knew something else about Bukowski. He had a vicious temper and could be easily provoked. Another police officer also remembered that two years earlier, Bukowski had abandoned a stolen car at the Christie Street Veterans Hospital, the same place that Gloria McKay's body had been found. Payne and the other detectives continued to pursue the lead on Bukowski. But they were having difficulty connecting the petty thief to three senseless homicides, and they still hadn't made the full connection to the Alfred Lang and McKay murders. But science was going to help. When the police lab tested the gloves found in the jacket discarded in the alley after Lang's murder, they discovered a substance inside. It was calamine lotion, which was often used in severe cases of eczema. Following a hunch, the Toronto detectives checked every hospital in the city for names anyone treated for eczema in the previous year. And sure enough, Stanley Bukowski had been treated for that very condition, and as an ex-military man, he had been seen at the Christie Street Veterans Hospital. The police were sure they had their murderer. But there was only one problem. Stanley Bukowski was nowhere to be found. Stanley lived with his wife, Jean, in a small apartment on Wellesley Street East. But when the police interviewed Mrs. Bukowski, she claimed to have no idea where her husband was. The attractive 30-year-old blonde, who worked as a waitress, told the police that she and Stanley had a fight several days earlier and he had left the house in a rage. 
She hadn't seen or heard from him since. When the police left the Bukowski apartment, they took a small bottle of calamine lotion with them, and it was later confirmed to be the exact eczema ointment found in the gloves the police had recovered. The police had a hunch that Mrs. Bukowski was lying to them, so they decided to keep an eye on her. But every day, she went to work and returned to her apartment on Wellesley Street alone. Meanwhile, Detective Payne continued his search for the tailor who had made the custom men's jacket he had found in the alleyway after Alfred Lang's murder. He and his team visited dozens of tailor shops around the city, hoping someone would recognize the coat. But no luck. Desperate, they contacted the local garment workers' union and asked some of their members to take a look at the jacket. The jacket was examined and pulled apart to inspect the stitching and the cut of the cloth. Much to the surprise of the police, the clothing workers soon determined that the jacket had likely been sewn by someone of European descent, given the expert craftsmanship. And they even had a name. Mitchell, an Austrian tailor with a small shop on Queen Street. But when Detective Payne went to the tailor shop, he was too late. The shop was closed because Mitchell had died. Not one to give up, Payne tracked down Mitchell's son who had relocated the business to North Toronto. And fortunately for Detective Payne, the old Austrian tailor had kept meticulous records. He had indeed made the unique jacket and had sold it two years before he died. And the purchaser? A one Stanley Bukowski. As the weeks went by, the Toronto police intensified their search for Stanley Bukowski. He was their number one suspect in the murder of Alfred Lang, and they were still working on connecting him to the McKay killings. The police wanted to talk to everyone who knew Stanley Bukowski. They tracked down his mother, his father, his siblings, and continued to follow his wife. If he was on the run, he had to be getting help from someone. His description and fingerprints were circulated to police forces across Canada and the United States, but there were no matches and no sightings. Bukowski had vanished. But six months after the Lang and McKay murders, the police got word that Mrs. Bukowski had booked a train ticket to Banff, Alberta. Detective Payne knew this was the break they had been waiting for. She was likely on her way to rendezvous with her husband. Now, if they followed her, she would likely lead them right to their suspected killer. But the police underestimated the pretty blonde waitress, and she gave them the slip at Toronto's Union Station before they were able to confirm what train she had actually boarded. Now, both Mr. and Mrs. Bukowski were gone, and the police had no idea where. Not long after she disappeared, Detective Payne got a tip that Mrs. Bukowski knew some people in Cleveland. 
Payne flew to Ohio, but there was no sight of the Bukowskis, and the American friends told Payne that the couple were likely in New Orleans. And sure enough, a few days later, a man matching Stanley Bukowski's description had been caught trying to rob a gas station. But when a New Orleans policeman gave chase, he tripped over a stack of tires and the thief got away. Detective Payne traveled back to Toronto, empty-handed. The fugitive wanted in the cold-blooded murders of Alfred Lang and Robert and Gloria McKay was still on the run, and the Toronto police were running out of resources to try to capture him. They had no idea where he was headed, but the one thing the cops did know was that Stanley Bukowski was extremely dangerous, and there was no telling what he might do to survive. On the next episode of Murderer on the Run, the execution of Stanley Bukowski. One year later, after the senseless killings of Alfred Lang and Robert and Gloria McKay, the Toronto police are nowhere closer to tracking down their number one suspect, Stanley Bukowski. Meanwhile, a string of robberies in the city of Los Angeles have the police searching for a daring cat burglar. But when an elderly woman is murdered during one of those robberies, the L.A. cops realize there is a dangerous killer on the loose. Will they catch him before he strikes again? And how is one murder in Los Angeles connected to three others in Toronto? Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.